Moving to Live is a podcast about movement and exercise. We bring you interviews with professionals in the movement and exercise field. The goal is to provide information for other professionals and also amateur movement aficionados, people who understand that movement is part of what makes life complete. Some of the people we interview you will have heard of. They're well known in and outside of the movement and exercise profession. Others you may not have heard of, but they have a great deal of knowledge to share. Many people doing the best work spend their time working with people, not working on their social media presence. We're going to give you a chance to learn from some of these talented and knowledgeable individuals, and we're going to learn along with you. Moving to Live podcasts are going to be short. Each interview will be long enough to impart usable information, but short enough to be able to be consumed in a single bout, during your workout, commute, or even during dinner prep. We all like long-form interviews, but time is valuable. Moving to Live wants to give you the option to learn and be entertained without needing to commit 60 minutes at a time for an interview. Give Moving to Live a listen. Check out our sister podcast, FitLab PGH, which highlights people, businesses, events, and activities in the Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania area that make movement a priority. Moving to Live would love to hear from you. Want to connect with us or have an idea for somebody you think we ought to interview? Drop us an email, mov2liv at gmail.com, or connect with us on Instagram and Twitter, both underscore mov2liv. We're excited to bring you these interviews, and we think you'll enjoy each and every one that we bring you. Welcome to another edition of Moving to Live. As you know, we are a podcast about movement, as you heard in the intro. We want to be for people who understand that movement is part of what makes life complete, and we provide interviews with people so that the professional and the amateur movement aficionado can gain knowledge. We've had a variety of people on so far, everywhere from people who work with uh, youth athletes to physical therapists to individuals who work with tactical athletes. Our guest today came through an introduction by Sam Wood, who we had on one of our first podcasts. Sam is a physical therapist and an ultra runner. Our guest today is also a runner, and he is a medical doctor. He's an osteopathic physician, which we'll talk about. And in the second part of the interview, we're going to be able to talk about what he's doing, which is concierge online medicine for direct primary care. We are with Dr. Josh Emder from, I believe, Boulder, Colorado. Dr. Emder, thanks for taking time to talk to Moving to Live. Well, Ben, thanks for having me on the show. It's really a pleasure. And one of the things that I'm excited about this is I know as somebody who's had numerous athletic injuries and other things and has actually worked in the medical field under an orthopedic surgeon, I know how difficult it is to get in to see physicians. And I think the steady MD, which we'll talk about in a few minutes, is really interesting. But I think what's interesting for a lot of people and the way that Moving to Live can educate people is just give them information. So I know I'm familiar with the difference between what a MD is and what a DO is. If you could just for the listeners describe the difference between a medical doctor, an MD, and a doctor of osteopathic medicine, both of whom are considered medical doctors. But I think there's a distinct difference that's really interesting and pretty important to understand. Yeah. So uh, that is a question that I do get more and more. It seems like for a while the public didn't even realize if their doctor was an MD or DO. Um, but I got into it um, really. I've been. I was introduced to osteopathy uh, by my father, who uh, has been a practicing osteopath for thirty plus years. 
So uh, I, I grew up uh, kind of learning about osteopathy. And really the big difference is that um, with osteopathic medicine, it's, it's, uh, it's really a more holistic approach. So for the first two years of osteopathic medical education, you're taught to evaluate the whole body as, as, a, as a single unit with multiple systems that are, are, are functioning in harmony. And um, osteopathy has been around since the turn of the century. So um, back in the 1800s, when A.T. still uh, came up with the osteopathic tenets, there was still a lot that we didn't, did not know about in medicine. And, you know, at that time, um, there were still a lot of doctors who were giving treatments that were actually hurting people. Like one example that I, I, I've always was told about was like giving like, you know, different snake oils and mercury to cure diseases. And this guy E.T. Still was really a pioneer at the time where he kind of, he was a student of anatomy and physiology. And his tenets were that the body is always seeking an equilibrium state of health. And in order to find that equilibrium, really every part of the body has to be in alignment. So he started doing osteopathic manipulations in order to get the you know vertebrae in alignment to restore both you know m muscle function and neurologic function stuff that really had you know in the 1800s was way way ahead of its time and with um the advancement of medical knowledge osteopathic medicine were still based in kind of those fundamental beliefs that et still came up with but we've also adopted you know, modern Western medicine, um, in, in, into osteopathy as well. And I know the important thing to emphasize to anybody who's listening is whether your physician is an MD or a DO, they are fully licensed in the state and basically able to do prescribe medicine, treatments, tests, et cetera. Is that correct? Yeah. I mean, I work, I work with, with, uh, DO cardiothoracic surgeon, neurosurgeon. So really it's just those first two years of medical school where you're just taught a couple of, of extra skills with manipulation and just a, a different approach to treating a disease state where it's not a disease isn't just a disease. It can be, you know, looking at a disease from a, a whole body lifestyle holistic approach. And I know some osteopathic physicians uh, place a great deal of emphasis, or maybe that's the wrong term, but uh, manipulations or adjustments are a significant part of their practice, depending what their specialty is. Do you find in your family practice that, uh, that you do a fair amount of adjustments or manipulations, or do you find that just understanding that helps you with your treatment of your patients? Yeah, so personally, um, I've spent the last 10 years of my practice primarily taking care of uh, diseases in the hospital, so taking care of hospitalized patients where there's a role for osteopathic manipulation, but um, really there's much more of a role for manipulation in the, in the clinic setting. And over the past uh, six months, I've, I've, I'm, doing, I'm getting back to my family practice roots, doing some clinic work as well as some virtual primary care. So for my clinic work, absolutely using mus um, using osteopathic manipulation to treat musculoskeletal problems. And really with osteopathic manipulation and techniques, a lot of the techniques that, that DOs are trained in have really been adopted by other professionals as well. So, you know, a lot of physical therapists, 
um, are using, you know, similar like muscle energy techniques, soft tissue techniques to mobilize tissues, increase range of motion and, you know, treat, uh, treat what we call somatic dysfunctions or, you know, body malalignments. I know one of the things that's very interesting for me interviewing people for Moving to Live is finding out how they got where they are professionally. And you kind of touched on that a little bit uh, a few minutes ago when you said that your first exposure to osteopathic medicine was that your father is an osteopathic physician. And I know whenever somebody's uh, parent does something, you either run as far away from it as you can or you kind of uh, say, you know, that's what I want to do too. Having a father or a parent who is a physician, was there any ever any doubt that you were going to follow the osteopathic track? Did you say, you know, I want to be a physician, maybe I'll become an MD, maybe I'll become a, a DO? Yeah, no, great story. So, Ben, Ben, I'm glad you brought up kind of the two choices there because my brother, uh, you know, chose to get as far away from medicine as he could and chose to study uh, study history. Um, but for me, like, I was always fascinated by the hospital. Um, I just loved kind of seeing my dad be able to go go to work and the relationships he made with his patients and really be able to you know problem solve and i i always saw my dad's passion and i'm a very passionate person and i you know connected with that from a very early age um i i went to see you undergrad for for college uh university of colorado uh, for undergrad and um during my time at at, uh, at CU Boulder, there were there were some moments when like kind of getting through the uh, the prereq courses where I was like, oh, I don't know, maybe maybe I should maybe I should do something else. Like all through college, I was very into rock climbing, so I spent a lot of time climbing, uh, backcountry skiing, um, taking taking pictures. So there there was a time when I was like, uh I remember this conversation with my father really clearly where I was like, dad, you know, you know, maybe I'll just hold off on going to med school and I'll uh, be a outdoor adventure photographer, climbing, skiing photographer. And he's like, yeah, Josh, you can do that. Just, just be a doctor first. <laughs> Probably good advice. I know I have a friend of mine from college that I've lost touch with who I believe eventually became an emergency room physician but I believe he was a ski patrolman and an EMT for 20 plus years after graduation before he went to medical school. Yeah. So now I'm, uh, I'm 10 years into my career now and my dad gave me good advice because, you know, I have 10 years under my belt and now I'm out taking pictures of runners and climbers and skiers. So it's great. That's what's great about life. And I know one of the things, as I've mentioned before in this podcast, is we are a podcast about movement. We want to emphasize movement. It's very clear from looking at your various web pages that you are very active and that movement is part of your life. Was that something that was instilled by you by your parents or were you an athlete growing up or did you go to medical school and then start working with patients and realize, you know, those patients that are more active or healthier, or those patients that are less active aren't as happy with their life? Yeah, definitely. I mean, my parents are like, uh, my, my parents are in their seventies. They're, uh, both, neither of them can ever stop moving. So they instilled that on both my brother and I, and I have a six and a seven year old and, uh, my, my wife and I are kind of the same way. Like we're, we're an active family. We're always out hiking together, skiing together. Cause that's, uh, exercise and movement as human beings. That's what makes us feel good. 
do you find in your practice as you get more into the family practice that uh, the majority of your patients are active? I know you're in Colorado, so that's a little bit different than some other parts of the country. Or do you find you have to convince them that, you know, part of taking care of yourself and quality of life is moving? Yeah. So, um, Ben, as you mentioned, I live in Boulder, Colorado, which is just a huge bubble. Um, you know, I um, got into marathoning and, and running as a means to keep up my uh, fitness once I started having kids just so I could keep up with my friends. So um, Boulder's definitely skewed in that uh, in that sense. Over the past six months, so I've been – the family practice clinic that I'm referring to is actually in Denver, and it's a, a nonprofit clinic um, really for, for immigrants and, um, and people who don't have great access to health care. So not taking care of uh, my Boulder community, but taking care of a, you know, I'd say a, a a demographic which is a lot more akin to, well, the the it's a, a lot more akin to the reality of, of of American health, where you know most of my patients are not active, they're sitting most of the, the uh, of the day. You know, I have seen statistics that the average the average American spends about six hours sitting, which you know, um, is just shocking to me. And I know you mentioned there, did you, am I correct in what you said that you started running after you had children or you ran before when you were in college? Yeah. So I, I ran my first like half marathon in medical school just when I was surrounded by a bunch of type A personalities. But, um, I, I always had the natural ability to run, but I didn't start really kind of running seriously until my first son was born, because that's where I figured out that running was the most efficient exercise. So, you know, before kids, you know, I could I had the luxury of being able to go out for like a three-hour mountain bike ride, or go out like rock climbing or climbing a, a fourteen thousand foot peak with my friends or my wife. And once uh, I had a newborn in the house, like I realized, like all I had was maybe an hour. <laughs> <laughs> and clearly from looking at your website, you have some talent for this as an age group person. I see that you have qualified and run Boston. Yeah. So, um, I, um, the, the Boston marathon was a bit of a journey for me. Um, I ran my first marathon. Oh, it was probably back in 2010 or 2011. And I ran it off the couch and kind of hurt myself. Um, but, but still finished with a pretty good time. But after that run, I was like, you know, I'm sure I can do better. I'm sure I can qualify for Boston. And I thought that would be an easy process, but you know, at under 40, I, I had to do, uh, I had to do a under 310 and I, I ran like a 309 marathon, like three or four times, um, which wasn't quite fast enough because for Boston, they only take people who beat their standard by some, some, amount of time that changes every year. So uh, after missing it by seconds, year after year, I hired a coach and ran a sub three hour marathon. And so I was able to run Boston last year and I'll be running it again this coming April. And that's very impressive. Well, thanks. I, I, I know that uh, very, very often hiring the coach, even though you have a great deal of expertise, helps because they can look at you much more objectively and say, what are you thinking? Why are you doing this? And if you were working with an athlete or you were talking to a patient, that would be the exact thing, same thing that you would be saying to them. Oh, yeah. I mean, um, 
hiring a coach for me. I work with Adam St. Pierre from Carmichael Training Systems, who I can't say enough good things about. But for me, like I had a really busy schedule and um, I uh, my times were stagnant. So I, um, I engaged Adam and I told Adam like, hey, like here's my work schedule. I'm really only able to run like three or four days a week. What do I have to do to really have high quality um um, workout sessions to be able to get my goals. And he was able to get me there in like five months of not necessarily running more than I had been, but just training a lot smarter. And I think that's something that would be interesting to the amateurs who are listening to this, or even some of the professionals who are not really at midlife, but saying, okay, I need a new bucket list idea. And I know from having talked to primary care physicians that I know in orthopedics that I know, All of the marathons now have the team and trainings, which raise lots of money for really great charities. But a lot of times you see people running these races who maybe didn't train the best way. And I I think what you've done by hiring a coach, it's kind of like a, hopefully for many people who see you as a patient, it's a monkey see, monkey do. But if you could just kind of talk a little bit more about how the training differed that what you were doing versus what uh, Adam St. Pierre gave you, because it sounds like when somebody says, well, I qualified for Boston and I only ran three or four days a week. Most people are going to look at that and say, how did you do that? You know? Sure. Yeah. No, a lot of, a lot of people, even in the running community will be like, Oh, you Josh, you're hardly even a runner. I mean, you're running like three days a week, but um, you know, I do, I, to be clear, I, that doesn't include my cross training and my kind of constant movement, but you know, that's like three, you know, quality running workouts mixed with some biking or some cross country skiing or some ski mountaineering or, you know, just, just going out and hiking with my family. And it really, it boils down to movement and, and quantity of overall movement. And to answer your question, what I was doing, my error when I was self, when I was self coaching, was that when I ran, I always ran hard. I didn't know, I, I, I wasn't, I, I hadn't educated myself on training theory like I should have. And, you know, now, like, I, I'm, I'm a firm believer that, uh, it, have you heard of the 80-20 rule? I have, yes. And for yeah, our so listeners, if you could just briefly describe that. Sure. So the 80-20 rule means you're spending 80% of your training volume in your kind of easy conversational zone. So zone like one and two, like this is where you're out for, you know, a jog, you're out for a hike where you can have a conversation with your friends. Um, yeah, I mean, you're, you're working, but you, but you're comfortable. And, um, the other 20% is spent when you're really uncomfortable. So doing intervals, hill repeats and really kind of pushing, you know, zone four and zone five. And, um, for those who don't know, like zone three is considered your tempo zone. So that's when like, that's like your marathon race pace where you're slightly uncomfortable, but you're able to hold it there for a long time. If that's the zone that you train in, like you'll, you just won't see the engagement, the, you won't see the gains that you would see by spending more time going easy and then 20% just going really hard. Like it, it does, does that help you, Ben? Do you does, want me to go a little bit no, further? I think that's a good explanation. I yeah. know some coaches call that zone three the gray zone in that runners like to spend time there because they feel that they got a good workout or cyclists like to spend time there because they feel that they got a good workout. 
I know a, a, a simple way to also put it is you need to go easy enough, often enough, so that when you have to go hard, you can go as hard as you need to go. Yeah, and, and really what it's about is building a huge aerobic base. And that's really the foundation, just like the foundation of a house. And like uh, even for like like Olympic sprinters, like they all really no matter what the event, you you can't you you can't build a training plan no matter what what the event is without having that aerobic base. And that aerobic base that takes years and years of movement to develop. And, you know, that's one thing that I think fits in, fits in really well to this podcast where the important thing with, with all, with movement is that it's, I'm just so passionate about movement that it's just one of the most, our, our human body is made to move. And if you aren't moving, you can't have, you can't have health if you aren't moving. And I, I just saw this over and over again in, in my hospital practice where you, um, you can take someone who's, you know, who's well, uh, a healthy, say, 30-year-old who is laid up in the hospital for a week. You know, they may take, you know, a week to recover from not moving. Um, but if you take someone who's older, you know, 70s, 80s, 90 years old, you put them in the bed for two days, they might not ever be able to recover just from that inactivity. So just the general steady, regular movement, whether it's running around with the kids, doing the the coach running, going for a hike, that gives you a volume of fitness that you have more that can decay in the bed rest so that you can still move around as opposed to the person who's sedentary and they decay even more and just can't recover because they lose so much strength. That yeah, they just don't have that. They don't have that reserve. I know I do some personal training on the side as a kind of my fun job since I teach exercise phys and I think it's important to practice it. And I tell some of my older clients, it's like, look, what you're doing now is not necessarily for today or tomorrow, but it's so, you know, 15, 20, 30 years from now, you can still be moving. Right. And a, a big misconception going back to my, uh, my, my clinic practice, um, taking care of people who are inactive um, which again is an epidemic in this country. Inactivity, sitting, um, you know, inactivity is 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 completely linked to heart disease, stroke, diabetes, obesity, hypertension, depression, arthritis, falling. Like all these things happen from not moving, and I, I have a lot of patients who. They think that in order, like they think they hear the word exercise and they cringe. They're like, oh, I can't exercise. Like people have this notion that to exercise, they have to like go to a gym and put on workout clothes. But it's not even about that. It's just a simple act of getting getting up every day and walking for 30 minutes, five days a week. I mean, that's, that's the American Heart Association guideline is 150 minutes of of, of, uh, of kind of light activity per week. And so few Americans can even meet that 150, 50 minutes of a week, um, that it, it's just, it's horrible. I know I, I joke around with people that, uh, one of the reasons I have dogs is because when the weather's really bad, that's when they want to go outside. And if I'm <laughs> thinking I don't want to exercise, they're saying, let's go outside in the snow and do something. 
I, th- yeah. I think I think you've hit on something there with with uh, some people don't like to exercise, and I think as professionals, we've kind of turned it the wrong way and said, you know, you need to get workouts in. And what you're describing is just moving, walking around moving. the block, having get- having a walking meeting if you have that opportunity counts as quote unquote exercise. Yeah, just just don't sit. And I'm sure you've seen kind of the studies about standing desks. I, I actually have one now in my home office as well as a, at my uh, in my clinic. And there is some kind of controversy if just standing instead of sitting at your desk like makes that big of a difference. But I know anecdotally for myself, I feel so much better if I spend my whole day in clinic not sitting. And it's definitely better for posture. It's you burn a couple more calories. It's it's. Probably better for for your uh, for your core musculature. I'm actually standing at a standing desk right now on a wobble board while I'm interviewing you. Oh wow! <laughs> I wanted to ask you one other question about the marathoning as you were talking about it that I think would be interesting to people. I know you can talk to coaches and experts, but as somebody who is an athlete and has the knowledge of the physiology, even though you're not officially a coach since your practices as a medical doctor. Did you find when you went down to sea level for running Boston or other races that you've gone that you have an advantage because you live at Boulder, which is at elevation? Yeah, no, absolutely. If uh, <laughs> if I'm really going for time and the PR, going to sea level really <laughs> helps me. Um, there's some, um, you know, there, there's some individual variation, like every, like everything. Like personally, I don't perform well at, at high altitude. Um, Boulder here at you know a mile high, you know five thousand two hundred eighty feet is kind of a sweet spot for training where you're still able to push pretty hard and get in solid workouts. And then when you go to sea level, it's it's just a little bit easier. <laughs> I know every time I go to Colorado and I go out and exercise, I think I'm losing my fitness. Yeah, you know, it can it can be rough, and it it takes it takes a couple weeks, um, you know, to really acclimatize. So a lot of people think like, oh, if I'm going to go run a, a race in Colorado, I'll, I'll just show up like a a week ahead of time to acclimatize. You know, it, it's probably better almost to just show up and and do it. Um, <laughs> interesting information and i i know i remember reading a few years ago in the i think it was the wall street journal that uh vale has problems with people going there to ski on a ski vacation and running into problems because of the altitude because they just aren't acclimated yeah you know more so breckenridge breckenridge is the classic uh, colorado resort that 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 gets tourists uh but veil to some degree as well. You know, any elevation around eight thousand feet, people can can start having acute mountain sickness. So very active growing up. Father is a medical doctor. You decide that you're going to be a medical doctor too. I know that people often look at a doctor, and I was actually, I think I mentioned before we started recording, I interviewed a chiropractor today, and he was talking about how with back injuries, sometimes a physiatrist or a chiropractor or a physical therapist is a much better choice than the orthopedic surgeon if they aren't a surgical candidate because the orthopedic surgeon looks at them and says, well, I can't help you because you're not a surgical candidate. Why are you here? Right. So I think it helps to educate people about the different types of physicians. So you are a family uh, board-certified family practice physician. 
what is that and how did you decide that, hey, I want to be a family practice physician and not a physiatrist or an orth- orthopedic surgeon or any of the other specialties that exist as a, as a physician? Yeah, sure. So um, my, uh, my road to family medicine was uh, not necessarily a straight one. Um, my dad's a pulmonary critical care doc taking care of patients in the ICU. And that's what I thought I wanted to do for a while since he was like in there saving lives and dealing with the sickest of the sick. Um, so going in, uh, to medical school, that's what I wanted to do. First two years of medical school, you're really just there like, uh, um, in the classroom learning the basic sciences. The second two years are where you're out and doing more clinical stuff. I quickly learned in my clinical time that um, the lifestyle of the uh, of of the pulmonary critical care doctor is not the one that I wanted. Um, being a huge uh, uh, lover of mountains, uh, I decided I wanted to be a doctor in a ski town. So, going into my fourth year of medical school, when you kind of have to start deciding w- what you're going to specialize in, and you're applying for residencies. Um, I was initially going to apply for just internal medicine positions, but then I, I spent, um, a month doing a rotation in big sky, Montana at the ski area and the, uh, the clinic in big sky, um, was really the only, uh, medical practice in town. So there you're taking care of kids, you were taking care of ski hill injuries, you were taking care of locals with their chronic conditions. And I quickly realized that if I wanted to be a doctor in a ski town, um, having all the having the wide breadth of knowledge that family physicians have is probably the best fit for me. And just briefly for listeners who are not familiar, what exactly is the training that a family physician has after completing medical school? Yeah, so um, with medical school nowadays, um, to get your medical license, um, you have to do one year of postgraduate training. So in the old days, going back to uh, <laughs> probably the 1970s and 80s, um, some, some medical school graduates would just do a one year postgraduate internship and then they'd call themselves general practitioners. But, um, really you can't do that anymore because if you're going to be on insurance plans and be able to get credentialed at hospitals, everyone needs to be board certified and to be board certified, you have to do a minimum of of three years of postgraduate training. So with family medicine, it's, um, you're spending your three years after medical school, um, spending time in the hospital, spending time in the clinic, spending time with pediatricians, with surgeons, and just getting a little bit of knowledge about everything. And then is there a licensure exam that you have to take at the end? Oh, of course. There's always exams, and you have to recertify those exams every 10 years, which I had the pleasure of doing uh, last March, or sorry, last April. <clears throat> so, um, Yeah. We're talking with Josh Emder. He is a family practice physician in Boulder, Colorado. He's given us a really good idea on how he went from somebody who thought he wanted to be a pulmonary specialist to a family practice physician. We're going to come back in two weeks and talk more about the family practice, specifically how he's how he's beginning to work in online medicine. And I think this is possibly the wave of the future, especially with something like family practice. Dr. Emder, I want to thank you for joining Moving to Live for part one of our interview. And I'm looking forward to talking to you again in two weeks. Well, again, Ben, thanks for having me on.
Thanks for listening to the latest episode of Moving to Live. Make sure you check out the show notes for contact information for our latest guest, as well as links about all the things we talked about. Intro and exit music is Traveling Light by Jason Shaw. You can subscribe to Moving to Live on Stitcher, Apple Podcasts, and Google Play, and be notified about new episode releases. Have any questions, comments, or suggestions? Drop us an email, mov2liv at gmail.com. Connect with us on Twitter or Instagram, both underscore mov2liv. Please tell your friends about Moving to Live. It's a go-to place for information for movement and exercise professionals and amateur aficionados who understand that movement is part of what makes your life complete. Until next week, keep on moving.